Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Linton. Over the course of this season, some common themes have emerged around not only our guests, but the topics they cover. One of those topics is name, image, and likeness. Well, it may seem like we've covered this topic from every angle, what we keep finding is that in this ever-evolving space, there's so many interesting people and approaches that it's a topic that warrants the continued discussion. On the show this week, we pick up that discussion with another person involved in multiple facets of the NIL space, Michelle Meyer. Michelle played volleyball at UC Santa Barbara and graduated in 2009 with a degree in psychology and a double minor in sports management and athletic coaching. After a brief professional career in Denmark, Michelle coached the beach volleyball team at the University of Hawaii. She then coached at Pepperdine for one year before running the Olympic Pipeline Program for USA Beach Volleyball from 2015 to 2018. Michelle founded a beach volleyball consulting company prior to founding NIL Network in 2020. In addition to NIL Network, Michelle is the NIL coordinator at San Diego State University. We're so happy to be able to talk to Michelle on the show this week, and, and she really gives such a great view of multiple facets of this NIL space from, from the work she does at NIL Network and at, at San Diego State University, giving both sides of that view. So we hope that you all enjoy this conversation with Michelle Meyer. Michelle, thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bryce. Excited for this uh, conversation. So there's so much I want to get into with you around the NIL space and what you do today in that space from a university perspective. But you have quite the history in sports in general, but as an athlete and as a coach and, and from to what you do now. So it, for all of us, if you could take us back and sort of give us a view into how you got from all those things to where you are today. Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Um, so I, my whole background's in volleyball. I was a collegiate volleyball player at UC Santa Barbara. Um, when I graduated from there, I didn't want to stop playing. So I ended up actually at the time, this is back in 2010, I think you could actually pull a, pull, a full database of all of the volleyball clubs in Europe with email addresses. It was like 10,000 of them. Uh, so I sent, ended up sending off an email to all those with my recruiting video and said it was almost the same process as with college, set up some tryouts over in Europe and got over there to play in, in Denmark for, for a season, um, came back. Beach volleyball had just been added as a collegiate sport, which really was my number one love over indoor volleyball. I missed it by a year to be able to play collegiately. And I was like, let me see if I can get in the coaching field. So I had to move out to University of Hawaii for a couple uh, years and, and coach rough. out there on the islands. <laughs> yeah, super brutal uh, sunrise practices on the beaches of Hawaii. Actually, your whole geographic setup sounds really rough here for people that live in the Midwest and being in Santa Barbara and in San Diego and Hawaii and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in uh, Santa Cruz, too, on the beach there, uh, Bay Area, so a little bit northern California, but came back, coached uh, boy, and then I was at Pepperdine for a year with the indoor program, and then there was a position with USA Beach Volleyball running the high performance program, which is essentially the, the junior pipeline to the national team. So all the camps, clinics, tryouts around the country, never been more busy in my life, maybe until this NIL thing came around, but learned a ton just about what it means to really run a program for athletes and, and families all over the country. Um, actually, when I was at Hawaii was when the Ed O'Bannon case got settled, which is everyone knows it kind of is the video game case, the EA Sports case. And that's when I 
I think that name image likeness really came to the kind of the public awareness and everyone's saying, oh gosh, there are so much money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars around college sports and the athletes really don't get a single piece of it. And not only do they not get, you know, a piece of it from their universities, but they also can't even use their own name, their image, their likeness to go out and make some of these opportunities. So started researching it around then. I think that was 2014. Um, as I said, grew up in California. So when California was the first state to pass their NIL law in 2019, I was like, holy moly, here it comes. Like this is coming sooner than later. I didn't really understand at the time that a state could essentially stand up to the NCAA and say enough is enough. At least the athletes in our state will have that right. I think their initial enactment date was January. 2023. Um, yeah, and fast forward to, I guess, uh, what was it, November of 2020, an article came up about NIL. And as I was reading it, I'm going, man, all of these deadlines, you know, Florida's bill got passed for July 1st, 2021, enactment date. NCAA initially was meant to meet in January 2021 to talk about their proposed NIL uh, reform. And everything was coming in 2021. And as I started Googling around, I was like, nobody is talking about this. And I think because of the pandemic, not really having sports in 2020, things got swept under the rug. And this is the biggest change, I think, to college sports probably since Title IX. And no resources available for anyone, you know, a couple articles out there. And um, so really, that's kind of the idea of where NIL Network came from and to try to aggregate some of those resources together and to build a hub of content to help people understand all the nuances of this change, which we've seen in this first year. It's been um, it's been a bit of a wild one. And I think it'll continue to kind of be that way for the next few years as we figure out this whole landscape. You're right in the sense that it's such an evolving landscape. And you mentioned the thing about the resources, even someone that I, from my day job perspective, work in technology and then obviously teach in a program about sports and teach about the technology of sports. And sometimes myself even have a hard time finding and sifting through that data. And I'm not someone that it really impacts on a day-to-day basis, right? And I can't imagine what that's like for a student athlete to have to deal with that. It's it kind of similar to, you know, when I was in graduate school, I'm going to date myself, but as I was coming out of graduate school, social media was just becoming a thing. And it was the Wild West, and people didn't understand how to use it. Now, that had less stakes in some ways, but it seems that the ever-shifting environment around that is is really interesting. So you brought up an IL network and sort of alluded to what you do, but can you dig more into sort of the specifics of what that uh, what you're doing there today and sort of what you're trying to build? Yeah, so you know it's been almost uh, two years now, which is wild since I've I've started it, and I mean really the idea was to put together a hub of content and information and. In the back of my mind, I was really thinking, you know, this industry, not only is it everyone knows there's a ton of money around college sports, it's going to be a billion dollar industry, but this was going to be entrepreneurial and startup heavy. Um, It's a sports industry. Everyone like loves to work in sports. And um, we also see at the NFL, NBA, you know, the MLB, we always hear these stories about athletes getting taken advantage of. And I'm like, man, if that's happening at the professional level where they have all the resources in the world and we're going to just change this rule and say, good luck, athletes. We don't really have any, you know, um, uh, I don't know, education for you. We don't have any way for you to vet these startups that are just sending you a DM to your Instagram. That's another thing. It's so easy for anyone to access college athletes now um, and to gain their trust and to you know sign them into really serious contracts. And so 
With that in mind, I, I really started tracking all the different companies that I found and trying to categorize them and build a directory of student athlete um, service providers. I think there's about 360 in there now that are working directly with athletes. And to try to just bring a little bit more transparency to this whole industry, um, because I think that the athletes are really vulnerable. And I think uh, my, my other job is working at San Diego State as their NIL coordinator. It's one out of 20 positions, around 20 positions. It's growing, but in the entire country. And I'm going, what are these athletes doing if, if they don't have someone to go and talk to? Because I think, you know, the number, and I, I feel lucky that I've kind of gotten ahead of this by about uh, a year and started meeting with these companies, probably about 150 or so now. Um, but athletes, the number one thing they do is they, when they come in my office is show me a DM that was sent to them and they go, hey, do you know this company? Are they legit? Are they trustworthy? Should I sign with them? Should I, you know, all these things. And I'm going, it's 50-50 it's actually, whether I would have actually even heard of this company. So I think it's just a really scary space. Who do they trust? And, you know, they're real contracts. And what's even more interesting about that is, that adds on to all of the other things that student athletes are dealing with in their in their lives and, and trying to be a student athlete. You obviously have more insight into this than me. I sometimes I struggle with being a college student, and then throw on top of that being a college student, being an athlete at a high level, the travel that's involved in that, all of the other people that are around you in your orbit from a players and coaches and and you know administration perspective. Then on top of that, like you said, these are real contracts. These are real offers that they have to solicit in in for their services in some ways, which is hard to navigate. And I can't it, it can begin to imagine how you go about parsing that information or wanting to figure out what you want to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the additionally to everyone kind of knowing this is going to be a, a big money-making industry in the sports industry, there also isn't that much of a, like a barrier to entry. Um, if you look at more established industries or even when new industries pop up, there can be, you know, high startup costs or these other things that really uh, make it more difficult. Whereas I think the, the, the most... Um, the easiest position to get in right now would be kind of calling yourself a marketing rep or whatnot where there you could start up today and you dm an athlete pop up a website for 20 bucks on uh um on godaddy and start reaching out to student athletes and your cost is 20 dollars. and i think that's what is really scary to me and i've seen it you know at san diego state with a ton of just bad contracts and again these athletes have no way to vet them they don't know who they've worked with before um there's no rate and review system or really anywhere for them to look so yeah it's hard. And like you said, I mean, you can tell the level and anytime that you're sort of in this space or, or navigate around it, that's one of the biggest things that comes up is really understanding sort of all the components. And then I think that's what, you know, is really interesting about NIL Network. But you brought up that you're sort of in a position at San Diego State, one of 20. And that's always a big question that I have is where the university relationship sits in this, because it, in some ways, and, and this is coming from someone who I don't have all of the, the information around it per se. It seems like a precarious position in some ways for the universities, right? Because there is the, the level of wanting to provide services to their student athlete to ensure that they're not getting swindled or to ensure that they're staying eligible or whatever it may be, just the, the, the health and well-being of the athlete. But then there is the flip side that, that is, there is money involved. It's a big business. And so what are the implications of that? And so from that, how do you see that 
in your own day-to-day life. And where do you think that responsibility sits from a university perspective? Or is there sort of a blanket responsibility that you think could be applied? Yeah. Um, and that's something that is, it feels like I'm kind of walking a, a very fine line every day because in my role here, it is very, very strictly like education only, like education athletes, coaches, admins out in the community for our boosters and whatnot. But it's really, I cannot facilitate a deal. I can't, you know, local businesses call me and they go, okay, I'm looking for an athlete with this major, you know, and I can't go like kids come to my mind, but I can't select kids either. Um, and then also from, again, looking at the, the contract side and the agency side, it's like, I can't bet a contract. Like the school doesn't want that liability to give a green light or a red flag to anybody. Um, and so that becomes really, really sticky and tricky too. Cause it's like, how do I, I can educate them on pieces they should be looking for in a contract or, you know, different things that are the averages or, or what that might look like. But at the end of the day, it's the the best I can do is educate them on it and then go, and I really recommend that you get an attorney to look this over with you or a trusted family friend who maybe has a background in law or something like that. And even in saying that, I know that most of them are not going to do it. Like. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a bit of a frustrating um, situation there as well. And I think another piece of it that's been interesting to monitor over the first year is every school, not every school, a lot of schools came out with their institutional policy on July 1st of last year that were much more restrictive than where they're at now because they kind of set it up, you know, no use of intellectual property, none of this, none of this, none of this. And then everything always comes back to the recruiting advantage though. So. If their competitor goes, okay, you can use our logos with written permission, then the other school goes, oh, gosh, we got to update our policy now to make it, you know, comparable to that one. And so it's all started shifting. It's been so fascinating to watch almost, you know, just around the country as everyone started updating and and hiring in these positions, being more involved in the uh, deal facilitation and really carving out more space. Um, And I really, I mean, it's a new arms race, right? Instead of investing all the, the stadiums and locker rooms and all of that kind of stuff, it, it really is kind of hyper-focused, at least for now, um, more on the NIL space. You can see that, like you said, the tightrope that you have to walk there because it, from a university perspective, it makes total sense that you wouldn't want to be involved in advising or consulting those around contracts and so on. But then the promise of the name, image, and likeness piece is that for the student athlete is that they can make money off their name, image, and likeness without the university oversight. And so there's, there's a weird line inside of that but like you said it's hard for an 18 19 20 year old to vet a contract and understand what's inside that contract and if they're going to be bound to something that they don't want to be bound to and and so on so it's it's a really interesting and difficult space but you mentioned the recruiting part which i think is really interesting at the most base level i would ask do you think that the nil space and the the university's their treatment of name, image, and likeness plays into a recruiting advantage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think for better or worse, I think that within athletic departments, you know, most of the resources that are provided, like obviously they're great for the student athletes that are here now, but it's also a way of saying, hey coaches, you can share that we have this program and this thing, your athletes get access to this. And it really does kind of tie it all back into that. And I mean, the the talk, I guess, of the last eight months here in the NIL space have been all the collectives that have been popping up all over the country that are usually booster led uh, type organizations that are 
sourcing NIL opportunities or even just kind of doing some fundraising efforts and then creating their own NIL opportunities, events, autograph signings, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, the NCAA came out with additional guidance a couple months ago saying that these collectives are considered boosters and therefore an arm of the university um, and need to act accordingly, saying, you know, you shouldn't be part of these recruiting conversations or directing coaches to um, tell them about your organization or whatnot. But I don't know. It's it, it's kind of interesting because we all know that this stuff, at, at least at the Power Five level, has been going on for decades, right? Of with revenue generating sport athletes, the bags of cash, all that fun stuff. So it's above table now. I think that there's a bit of sticker shock on it that you know for just the news headlines and whatnot. We'll see how many of those numbers are actually um, real. <laughs> I think just yesterday came out that some athletes are saying, "Hey, like I was promised this." illegally because they can't have any um, NIL opportunities for enrollment or continued enrollment out of school. But now they're coming out and going, I was actually, and now I'm not getting what I was promised. It's like, well, that's a really sticky situation because you're, what you're saying actually could cost you your NCAA eligibility. But at the same time, we understand that you were promised all this money, but you couldn't put in a written contract because that would definitely cost you your eligibility before you arrived on campus. But also, if you're not getting paid, then that sucks too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so many, there's so many layers to that, which I think is really interesting. And it's, again, hard to navigate. I can't imagine being in the space where you have to advise a student athlete around what to do with that. But one thing I think is interesting, you brought up these collectives and you see often in the news, the news that you see around these things is the the, the large contracts that marquee players in, in large sports, men's football, men's basketball, women's basketball, those things could get. But actually, interesting enough, in a previous episode, Adam Cook, who you know and, and works in the NAS space, made a really interesting point to me. He said, there's that, that's two or 3% of, of what's if, happening. If that, like I would say. That's, and that's interesting to know. But then, then the follow up point that he made to it is if you look at the next 30 to 40%, is where the difference can be made. And what the point that he was making was, if you look at the volleyball player or the basketball player, you know, I went to undergrad at Purdue. Like a ba- I could foresee this as a basketball player at Purdue doing some sponsorship for the local car dealership there. And that gives that athlete, for lack of a better term, walking around money. It's not, I'm going to I'm gonna buy a new car, but it's, I'm going to be able to go out on the weekend. I'm going to be able to eat. I'm going to be able to, whatever it may be, which for student athletes, a lot of times they don't have the opportunity to make any other money because of the time commitments that they have. And so if you look at it in that way, it seems like a really positive thing because that large percentage that sits there, not the 1%, but that area where they, they can make that walking around money seems like a really good opportunity. Yeah. And I think that we, in this first year, we have not even, I guess, just barely scratched the surface of what I think that NIL will look like at the local level, Um, because I think it's just going to take more time for these local businesses, um, especially the ones that aren't uh, franchises that are more like the mom and pop shop to understand, like, not only can they now work with college athletes where before they were being told, don't even give them like a free soda or anything like that. You could cost them their eligibility, but now they can work with them. If they're more, again, of a local business, they might not even know really what influencer marketing is or why they should be using it, how to put together a deal, where to find athletes. All of these things are, 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 you know, there's 
they almost need more education than the athletes on this process. Um, that's what I always say. I think San Diego is a great opportunity for NIL because we don't have a lot of professional franchises. You know, we don't have a professional football team or a basketball team, but we have a massive city, 85,000 local businesses. It's just how do we educate those businesses on why they would want to work with San Diego State athletes? And I think that's a huge part of my role, but at the same time, it is, um, you know, I think I made a joke about it the other day. I hosted a couple of webinars for local businesses. And so I'm like, all right, got a, you know, 50 businesses down, only 84,550 to go. <laughs> but it starts somewhere. I'm sure those things snowball. Using back to my example, I remember if you grew up in the Midwest and, and or went to school here, there was a cardio, Bob Norman car dealership, which is in Indiana and Illinois. You could see the reach of that. And then that, if that someone like that did that, that could snowball to the other local business and say, well, wait, I, can, yeah, I want to be involved with this because those local, those athletes certainly resonate in that local community, especially in college towns, like Big Ten college towns, like a West Lafayette, like a Bloomington, Indiana, like a Madison, Wisconsin, something like that. And it's interesting to hear you say that it hasn't really taken hold at the local level yet, because in all my thinking, in some ways, that's where it makes the most sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to find those athletes that have the national sponsorship and those things on that level. And we've seen some of those already. But like you said, it's it's the 1% that, that really have that. I guess the, the, the follow-up question to that would be, there's that middle percentage that the walking around money. Do you see from athletes, I guess the, the macro level question is the interest from, from athletes overall. Is it holistically across the board, every athlete from a student athlete perspective is interested? Or is there a subset that's like, I'm not worried about this in any way? Yeah, so I actually think, you know, this this first year, um, a lot of athletes were disenfranchised by NIL uh, across the country, just how it got laid out at the last minute. And then, you know, they're just seeing the headlines. This kid gets a car. This kid gets a million dollars. And they're going, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. So this isn't for me. And then for better or worse, I think a lot of schools around the country were like, okay, this is in place. We need to provide a protective education, you know, the financial literacy, how to read a contract, the taxes, more of like the, the drier topics and made all those mandatory. And and like, I don't know. So since I've been at, at San Diego State and that's been a big topic of conversation, like what do we make mandatory versus optional? Knowing that if it's optional, you know, they have a little bit more intrinsic motivation to be there. It might be, I mean, it's going to be a much smaller group, but is that a, the better place to start and then have it grow organically with uh, throughout their team? Or is it something that we need to say, like, for example, I'm doing uh, contracts in a, a couple of weeks here, just an educational 15-minute session on it, um, make it required and say, this is actually stuff that, like, you really should just 15 minutes. Um, and I think the education piece is kind of tough and not really anyone has, at least to my knowledge, figured it out perfectly yet. Like, what resonates with these Gen Z athletes? Is it... I don't think they want to be lectured out anymore. I don't think they want to watch short videos on their own time. I don't think they want to read handouts. <laughs> I don't know what they want to do, but I, you know, what's what's worked really well in here is I can send them a link to my calendar and they make little 30 minute meetings with me and come in and we just sit down and talk, look at, you know, what they want to do in the space. But 
obviously there's 500 of them and one of me. So if every single one of them want to do it, that's not going to be very feasible. But I do see already going into the second year that the interest has grown tremendously with the incomers. So I know that the, the high school athletes were looking at them going, I can do this now. Like, I can't wait to get to college and see how I can make some NIL deals. Um, so we'll see. Well, and what's interesting, too, about that is... You call them the dry, the dry topics, and it's probably a good moniker for that. But if you look at it from an educational perspective, and again, we're not talking the one to two percent that that are going to become professional athletes and, and make money in that. And it's a really good education from a a deal making, a the finances, the contracting portion of it, the marketing, the branding, all those things. If you look at it, if the directive of an institution is to educate that young person or young athlete. It provides a really great educational opportunity with actual use cases that are you are involved in. To me, that sounds like an easy sell, but I'm not an 18, 19, 20-year-old student athlete that then is thinking, well, I have to take more classes to, to know these things. So how we've kind of managed that at San Diego State, we have a student athlete development program called Assets Going Pro that um, it's a four-year program. The, all the athletes are enrolled in it for one semester, their fall or spring of each year. And we've just integrated in the really kind of high level NIL topics, but, and, and I teach those, but I do it from a perspective of like, even if you're not interested in NIL deals, let's say, um, I don't know, there's one on actually, uh, deciphering and negotiating contracts. And the way that I built that out was saying, once you graduate and you get your first, you know, um, not professional contract, your first, I don't know, career contract in your hands, what are some things that you can negotiate on that? How do you negotiate? Why would you negotiate? And then I go, oh, by the way, if you engage in NIL opportunities, that's a really good opportunity to get hands-on experience while you're still here in college and to try it out and just see what happens and, and where it goes. And you'll feel much more confident making those actually more big money you know, decisions and negotiations once you get there in a few years. And without a lot of lift, meaning that a lot of students themselves have to do internships and, and the like to even get some level of exposure to those types of things. And, and like you said, when you get out of school and, and in a job interview can talk about, hey, I, I was in branding and marketing discussions for my own self and know the inner workings of that because of it. So like I said, the, the quote unquote dry topics, but it could be really valuable. The other thing that I have seen a lot of, or I've seen come up uh, from bringing these two sides together are for, I guess for lack of a better term, is marketplaces. We had on the podcast earlier this season, former Northwestern quarterback, they started a company called Matchpoint Connection. And he kind of described it as a mashup of social network dating site and, oh, right? So think Tinder for both sides. Have you come across those? And do you think there is value in that for the student athlete and for the brands on the other side? Or do you think that that causes more confusion in the landscape? I think that it's been interesting to track kind of the marketplace model as well, because on July 1st of last year, there was about 30 that launched or, you know, we're gearing up to launch and they're going, okay, we are a national marketplace. We serve all athletes. We serve all brands come sign up on our platform. And what they quickly realized is their kind of assumption that, you know, these, these national brands, like a, let's say a Nike, for example, if Nike wants to partner with an athlete, they're not going to be going through a marketplace. They're going to be going directly to the athlete's agent, most likely, because those really big dollar deals are going to go through marketing reps um, for the most part. 
And so a lot of the deals on there were very small dollar deals, but then also they're missing the huge um, like local market because again, they serve all the athletes, a local business is going, well, I only want to work with athletes from San Diego State or from Northwestern. Like, where do I find those athletes? And so they pivoted, most of them pivoted in two different ways. One of them went more the agency model, working on group full team deals or like the kind of celebrity style athlete representing them. The other ones went and said, okay, we're going to build more of a, like still with, under the umbrella of their marketplace, but little um, like sub hubs, I guess, for each individual school that will just feature their athletes and just kind of have the local businesses on there. And I think that that still has room to grow and to get quite a bit better. And I'm sure that it will, but I think that those local deals can be a really handy way to, or should be facilitated through the marketplaces. I tell the athletes when they come in and talk to me that a benefit of the marketplace is that on most of them, the contracts that the brand is required to sign into are like the templated contract of the marketplace. And so they don't need to worry as much about like being able to read the contract and their eligibility or getting taken advantage of or, or those type of things. Um, and also they're an easy way for them to find um, find deals. One problem I have with the marketplaces, which I'm still trying to figure out um, which ones offer this and which don't, is that a lot of them, uh, you know, they'll have thousands of athletes on them but they won't have any way for athletes to be proactive in reaching out to brands mm -hmm. and saying, hey, like, I love your brand. I use it every day. How can we make a deal or to submit, you know, why they would be a great fit for this company? So a lot of them are like kind of sitting ducks on there and they don't have a way to differentiate themselves and they're waiting for a brand to reach out to them, um, which I think, you know, they could sign up for all 30 and never get an opportunity. Some of these marketplaces now have more of that job board. I still don't think it's perfect, but I think it is kind of getting more in that direction. Um, because again, some some athletes want to be proactive in this space, but they don't know how to reach out to brands um, or it's scary to go, okay, do I email? Do I LinkedIn? Do How do I go about this? And if they're already on a marketplace, then they have an interest in NIL deals with college athletes. It just makes it a little easier for them. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And honestly, I didn't know that it didn't work in that direction. What I'm saying is that that would make sense. Now, Zach, who was on, on the podcast previously, explained it to us was that, you know, those brands are there. They can reach out to those. It's sort of like a match that, that could be done if they're interested and this person's interested, right? They can do that. But it would make a whole lot of sense to go the other way in the sense that, like you mentioned, with local businesses, some of these don't understand the space just yet. And so some of them don't also you can see the logical extension of, hey, I use your your products and your or brand or interact with your services. They may not see the intrinsic benefit of that from a student athlete, a young person, right? And being proactive, it really gives them the opportunity to say, look, I can make this relation for you because here's what it can open up from a branding and marketing perspective. So I didn't know that they, they didn't do that. And I guess that leads to another question of, you often see whether the student athletes you work with are sort of you know overall are student athletes being more proactive or is it again more of that like brands and companies are coming to them and that's how those relationships start i think it's still for most of them that the, they're waiting for the brands to come to them um we at San Diego State, we have Open Doors, and Open Doors actually has a job board. <laughs> I think, again, some, some room for improvement because it is just like a one-click apply, which I'm sure these brands just get inundated with thousands of applications that don't really 
mean much. Like I'm like, can't we just do like a three to five sentences of why you're a good match for this company? And then it'll kind of take out all those uh, athletes just go in and go ding, 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 apply, apply, apply. It doesn't even matter what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, there's still, still a lot to learn about how to be proactive and, and go out and source opportunities. Like what is their value? How do they put together even a brand sheet for themselves of, of why a company would partner with them, identifying those companies and what their kind of niche could be. Why do people follow them on social media outside of their sport? Like there's so many pieces of it that they're still really kind of sorting it out, I think, except for the ones that are more entrepreneurial, you know, maybe their parents were entrepreneurs and now they're going, heck yeah, let's get after this. And we've got a couple here and those are the really fun ones that, that come in and talk to me, you know, once a week and go, okay, I think I'm going to do this. I'm like, all right, let's make a plan for that. And I don't know, it's, it's fun. When you mentioned that, the sort of finding those niches that you can really get into, interesting enough, your background in volleyball, right? Like if you look at something like volleyball, there is a really ardent fan base for that. And you can imagine that, or if you look at swimming, sports that don't oftentimes get the same level of coverage as a, a football or a men's or women's basketball, but they have their followings from a sports perspective, from a university perspective. And that does seem like a space where athletes that are in that sport and fit that niche could really do a really good job of catering to those brands or people that fall into that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've seen, you know, these, these collectives that are university specific, a new kind of trend is it niching down even more. So now it's like collectives just for football athletes or just for basketball athletes or whatnot. And one of my thoughts that I think will happen sooner than later is more for the Olympic sports, you know, like looking at beach volleyball, tiny little niche sport, but you're right. Like they have a pretty good audience within like that little sport. And then there's brands that are specific to beach volleyball with um, sunscreen, swimsuits, um, beach, some beach games, things like that. I'm going, could there be a collective like just for beach volleyball? Not talking university specific, but around the whole country, like I would subscribe five bucks a month to get, you know, 10 bucks a month on subscription content to get insider access to these collegiate beach volleyball athletes, interviews, that kind of thing. And even just to support the sport in general, I think people would be willing to do, but I don't necessarily have an affinity towards one. I mean, I'll always be Hawaii beach volleyball, but outside of that, you know, I don't really have an affinity towards one program or another, but I just like all the athletes in general, I'd want to support them. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happens in the next year or two um, with more of our Olympic sports. So. I don't have a lot of exposure from a volleyball perspective and playing besides the, the sand volleyball court that was in the front yard of my fraternity house. But I was fortunate enough to live in London during the Olympics in 2012. And when you live in the city, tickets are actually really easy to come by because the cancellations and those things. And I think we went to beach volleyball every day because it was so exciting in person and it was, it was a horse guards parade. So it was a really cool setting. And it, I, you can see why there is a really, you know, ardent following for beach volleyball because it's such a fun and exciting sport. So I, I get you out of here on this, and this is not the easiest question at all, because I think that if, if we had the answer to this, you know, a lot of things would be different. But as this space evolves, you're a year into this, right? Starting year two. How do you think that year two goes? But if you spin that a little bit forward, what does year five look like? And, and potentially what does year 10 look like as we continue to evolve in this space? I think there's going to be uh, a lot of positives and um probably quite a few negatives as well. Um, on the positive side, I think that 
there will be more local opportunities for more of our Olympic sport athletes or the ones without that celebrity type status. Um, I'm hoping for, or what I think makes a lot of sense for local businesses as well is doing team opportunities or group opportunities uh, to further their reach, but it also makes it easier for the athletes, you know, do something with your teammates, go have a meal at a restaurant or whatnot. And I think um, there is value there on both sides, but again, just it hasn't really been happening too much yet. Uh, I think on more of the negative side, unfortunately, we're going to start like this first year was a lot of rainbows and butterflies and um, everything is so great. I think that it's already starting to kind of come out that there are quite a few kind of shady actors in the space. And, you know, they've signed a lot of athletes into contracts that are not on their best um, in the athlete's favor at all. I've seen some of them uh, come through here and it's just, it's sad. It's really sad actually, because they don't really have an idea of what, what even to look for in these. And I know that, you know, these companies can sign out, send out dozens a day and knowing that probably at least one isn't going to read it and that they're going to sign in and then they get all the rights. Um, so I think we're going to see some of that. I don't know where the collective space is going to go. Uh, supposedly NCAA is investigating some of them right now. I really don't know how much they can, uh, they have the power to do um, without bringing on hundreds of millions of dollars of more litigation. And now, of course, we have the all the conference realignments as well to throw into the bucket. So I think it's going to be a very interesting kind of five years of college sports, even if you're looking outside of the, the NIL world and what that'll end up being. So. You're right. I, I do think it is going to be very interesting how this evolves, but how college sports in the, the overall landscape evolves. But, you know, Michelle, we really appreciate the time today. I think a lot of our listeners are involved in this space in some way, are at the college administration level, at the coaching level, but college athletes themselves. And so it's really valuable information for you know, all of them. And I think if you could tell everybody where they can find you from NIL Network perspective, because I do think it's an, an amazing resource for people that are really trying to get that information. Website is nilnetwork.com. My email, Michelle at NIL Network. And then uh, we're pretty active on Instagram, which is just at NIL Network as well. We have a Twitter account, but I'm not much of a, a tweeter. Haven't really figured that one out yet, even though I know all college sports conversations happen on Twitter, but haven't made that jump. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. And I'm sure that the students and student athletes will definitely check that out. So we really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thanks, Bryce. That's fun.